Let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to just open us in a word of prayer and we'll dive back in. It's good to be back in our Old Testament class. You can see where we are. Just a few classes left and I'll be I'll probably be doing part two of this next. So if you want to continue in the class, we'll be doing the prophets and finishing the Old Testament by serving the prophets next trimester. So but let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being able to be back together again in the new year to study your word together. And we know that, as the psalmist said, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we rejoice in the fact that your word is like food to our souls, nourishes us, strengthens us. We love your word, and we pray that, as the psalmist said, that you would show us wonderful things in your law, that you would open up your word to us, teach us, give us understanding of it, so that we might know you, that we might know your son, that we might grasp the gospel better, and that we might learn instruction how to live as your people. So we pray that you would bless our time this morning to that end, and even our whole uh, time of worship together in the service as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to, as you can see actually in the schedule, we're going to cover two long books, Kings and Chronicles. In your English Bibles, it's First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, but in the original text, the Hebrew text, it would have been, they would have been one book which we'll talk about here in a second. I want to just start with the book of Kings and just cover a few of the introductory matters. The author, like so many of the books, is anonymous, probably some prophet, as we see that there were many prophets mentioned even in the books of Kings and Chronicles, that they will refer to other writings written by prophets and how they drew upon those writings in composing these books. So, most likely, there were multiple, there were many prophets unnamed to us, you know, whose names have been lost to history, who were writing. And so this, I would guess that Kings and Chronicles were both written by prophets. In terms of sources, the author used multiple pre-existing sources. In fact, it'd just be interesting, just for your curiosity's sake, to turn to First Kings 14, Verse 19, and then we'll also look at verse 31. Here you have a, a typical ending to a description of a particular king, Jeroboam, and his reign. And it says, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And then if you go down to verse fifteen seven, the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So there's the chronicles of the kings of Israel, chronicles of the kings of Judah. And you say, well, that's just, that must be the book of chronicles that we have, but can't be because chronicles clearly wasn't written till much later. So what you're seeing is sources that chronicled the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah that were at least the writer was aware of and is probably indicating that he referred to these writings in composing the books of first and second kings. So, um, and that would make sense, right? That there would have been records preserved and that an author of a book like this utilized those records. Sure, Moses did the same thing as he 
wrote down the genealogies uh, of Adam and Noah and Abraham, etc. There were probably existing records. Also, the date. Uh, this is probably written in the exilic period. We say that because obviously it takes you up to the exile. The story does, so it has to have been written after that. But there's no mention of the Edict of Cyrus. You remember Cyrus issued an edict to release the Jews to go back. So that has left scholars thinking that this must have been written sometime during the exilic period rather than after the return out of exile. And we'll see that 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 would make sense given what's in the book. The recipients then would have been the Israelites living in exile in Babylon and perhaps later in Persia. As I mentioned before, originally this would have been one book, not two. And then finally, just what type of literature is it? This again is one of the historical books, historical narrative, a selected history intended to make a theological purpose or a theological point. So that's some introductory matters. I want to say a little bit about where First and Second Kings or the book of Kings fits in the Old Testament uh, canon. First of all, you can see it tells the storyline of the Bible. It picks up the storyline of the Bible from the end of David's reign to the end of the Davidic dynasty. So if you figure First and Second Samuel end with in the middle, well, toward the end of David's reign, right after he issued that terrible census, right, that led to judgment. This book is picking up pretty much right after the, the book of Samuel uh, and taking you all the way to the end of the Davidic dynasty, right? The end of the kingdom period in Israel, really, when the last king was taken away into exile after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So it covers about 350 years of Israel's history. You can see the dates there from about 930 to 580 BC. And remember, if you're in BC, you're counting down, right? So the numbers get smaller. That's why 930 to 580, about a 350 year period. Not exact, but that's roughly the period. It provides the historical background, if you think about it, for most of the writing prophets. So, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, even potentially Ezekiel would, would have been contemporary. Well, not Ezekiel. Ezekiel would have been written or ministering about the time that this book was written. But the, the story in, in the book of Kings would have provided the background for many of the writing prophets that you had. They would have ministered during the time of the kings that's recorded in this book. So it gives you sort of the historical backdrop to many of the prophets, their ministry and their writings. So some, oftentimes you can actually look at a prophet and it'll tell you, like Jeremiah, it'll say who was reigning when he was prophesying. And many of the prophets would span multiple reigns of kings. Uh, so for instance, the prophet Isaiah ministered across different reigns, but started with the wicked king Ahaz, but then also ministered during the reign of Hezekiah. Some notable events in First and Second Kings. Obviously, you have Solomon built his temple at the beginning of the book. It records the division of the kingdom into north and south. By the way, which of the kingdoms was in the north? Israel, right? And then Judah 
was in the south, and which of the kingdoms would the Davidic king been reigning in? Of course, that would have been in Judah, because that's where Jerusalem was, that the temple was. You also have in these books the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, obviously very important in the Bible storyline. And then, of course, you have a record of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the exile, first of all, of the Davidic king, which is very important because of the promise that God had made to David that one of his descendants, his kingdom would be established forever. And then at the end of this book, you have, you know, you, that image that's there in the prophets of the stump of Jesse. So if any of you loggers, you know, you know, you cut a tree off and that's a pretty sad thing to be left with just a little stump. And that's what the house of David, the Davidic dynasty was like a stump by the end of this book. It had been lopped off, right? And it leaves you with a question, well, what about the Davidic promise? Of, a, of an eternal dynasty. Okay, so that's some of the notable events in the book of Kings. And just an outline here, we're going to actually have to do this in, in just one slide, provide you with a sort of broad outline of the, of the whole book because we're covering so much material today. But you have, of course, in 1 Kings 1, 1 through 11, and in fact, it'd be good just to, if you turn to 1 Kings 1 and you see that it begins with David in his old age. It does start with David, but very much at the end of his life. And as in you know, many kingdoms, the transition of power from one king to the next is often shrouded in intrigue and people trying to kill one another to figure out who's going to be reigning next. And something like that happened among David's sons. But... The one who emerged as king was the one that David had said should be king, and that would be Solomon. By the way, what was ironic about Solomon being the next king? He was, he was that she was. Right, so he was the child conceived with, well, he was a child conceived through Bathsheba, who, with whom he had committed adultery, whose husband he had murdered. And so there is some... You know, much like in the Bible storyline, you have the whole incident with Judah and Tamar, right? Where you have just full of disastrous, immoral intrigue. And out of that comes Perez, who would be in the line of the Messiah. Or you think of the fact that the line of the Messiah was continued through a Moabite widow who ended up marrying a, a man from Bethlehem, Boaz, and how... You have these two women that were not even, not Israelites that were, became part of the descendancy of the Messiah. Or you have also um, uh, Rahab the harlot, uh, Canaanite harlot, who was actually Boaz's mother? Great-grandmother, no, great mother? Great-grandmother, um, So you have many incidents like this in the scripture, right? where God intentionally utilizes and works through acts of human sin. And what theme do you think that that really emphasizes in the scripture? Grace. Yeah, grace. That he would fulfill his promises to sinful, undeserving people, not because of, not through their efforts or their worth, but by his grace. And so, of course, this would come to its climax in the crucifixion itself, the, the great the Messiah being crucified as a criminal. 
And yet that being the very means by which he he redeems Israel. Okay, well if you if you go to over across to first Kings eleven, you see the reign of Solomon beginning. Okay, so after all the intrigue, you have Solomon being crowned as king starting in first Kings eleven. Sorry, that's would be Solomon's death. Yeah, so this is Solomon, the end of Solomon's reign. So first Kings one through 11 is really about the the reign of Solomon, the transition of power from David to Solomon, the reign of Solomon. Obviously, uh, many important things happened during this. You have the construction and the dedication of the temple, which would then play such a huge role in the life of Israel going forward. And then starting in chapter 12 is another huge event Chapters 12 through 14 are so important because they describe the division of the kingdom, which had remained united under David and under Solomon. But starting with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the kingdom was divided in two. And you had, of course, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. By the way, why was the kingdom divided? Do you remember? Rehoboam refused to um, listen to the people after Solomon died, and he listened to the young men instead of the wise, older people, and he said, I'll just make your life harder. And they said, well, that's it. And they followed Jeroboam, I think. Right. So, but God had already told Jeroboam through a prophet that he was going to be the right. leader. That's true. All of that is true. Those are the historical events leading up to the division of the kingdom, foolish decisions by Rehoboam, political intrigue. But at the same time, verse 15 of chapter 12 says, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat, So the Lord had prophesied to Jeroboam that he was going to be given 11 of the tribes and one would be, would remain with the house of David. But why, why, why did, was that a turn of, I mean, why would the Lord ordain and bring about the division of the kingdom? Do you remember? Solomon had become an idolater. Right. It was a judgment upon, because of Solomon's idolatry toward the end of his reign. So, if you picture it, the point being is that if you picture it like this, you know, you have Saul, the first king, and then David and Solomon, sort of, it, the kingdom reaches a high point there, right? But as soon as you get to the end of Solomon's reign, you're starting to go downhill. And then, and then the kingdom splits apart into two. And from here on out, it's just going to be this sort of steady decline. Of course, there are blips of ups and downs with certain kings that arise that turn out to be righteous, like David, have been. But but overall, the trajectory is down, down, down. And so um, this event in 1 Kings 12 through 14 is very significant. And then next you have in 1 Kings, starting in 1 Kings 15, all the way through 2 Kings 17, is really the history of the two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and it sort of oscillates back and forth between the two kingdoms, um, giving you the history of Israel. 
in the north and Judah in the south. And this section ends, Second Kings 17, if you turn there, you see that this chapter marks the fall of the northern kingdom, where God finally judged the northern kingdom for their idolatry by bringing the Assyrians to take them away into exile, to destroy the capital city, to take away, to remove the king, to take the people away into exile. Now, why did that happen? What was the, I mentioned it, but what was the reason why? Because of their idolatry. Right. So you had, God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel. The, that covenant was a relationship between God and Israel. The terms of that relationship were summarized in the Ten Commandments. And you might say the first four were about prohibiting idolatry. The last six were prohibiting immorality. And idolatry was obviously the sort of primary sin. And then flowing out of that came all kinds of other sins of injustice and how many righteous kings did the northern kingdom of Israel have? Do you remember? I don't think they have any. So, in fact, God was quite patient with them, right? Over centuries, bearing with them, sending them prophets. In fact, Elijah and Elisha, the two greatest prophets, where did they, where did they serve? Did they, were in, they in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? The northern kingdom. At least Elijah. Elijah. Right. They were. They ministered to Ahab and just. They were in the north. So God sent them prophets, the greatest of all the old covenant prophets, in terms of the miracles that they performed, the signs that they gave, to show that Yahweh was the true God, not the Baals. And yet, despite God's patience with them and sending them prophets. He fin- they, they refused to repent, and finally, he gave them over into the hands of their enemies and, uh, and, and allowed them to see whether their gods would deliver them or not. Which, by the way, that was, it was, this was unfolding exactly like those covenant curses, covenant blessings in Deuteronomy 28, right? If you keep my covenant, these blessings will happen. If you break my covenant... These curses will come upon you, and you could just see all the curses came upon them until finally one of the curses was that they would be removed out of the land, right? So this is the history of the two kingdoms leading up to the fall of the northern kingdom in 2 Kings 17. And then, of course, in this section you have the ministry of Elijah the prophet, which runs from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings 2, when Elijah is taken up into heaven and succeeded by Elisha, the prophet, 2 Kings 2 through 13. By the way, just as an aside, when you're reading uh, the Gospels and multiple occasions, that Jesus, the question arises, who do people think that Jesus is? And one of the things that they say, do you remember? He's a prophet. He's a prophet or even that he is Elijah the prophet. By the way, why would they think that he was Elijah the prophet? Maybe because Elijah wasn't ever seen to die. Right, so that there certainly was a particular mystery surrounding the prophet Elijah because uh, you know he and Enoch were the only two people that apparently in the old 
had never died, but but something else. Malachi Elijah. What's that? Malachi four. Okay, Malachi four. Yes, but um, the, that was describing uh, you know a figure that would come prior to the Messiah. So it's it's possible that that text that they may have thought that he was that figure. But I actually think there was something else, something so striking that it just Elijah was the first person that that would come to their mind. Did it have something to do with raising someone from the dead? Okay, well, when you look at the miracles of Jesus, cleansing a leper, healing, you know, raising people from the dead, healing people who were sick, right? providing food for the hungry, all these things, these were miracles that they had seen before, but only through one, two figures, right? Whose ministries coincided, Elijah and Elisha. So Israel had never seen such miracles, except in that period of the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And some of the miracles, if if you go and you compare the miracles of Jesus to the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, they're very similar. It's as if there's an intentional echoing. And of course, there's, that's true. There, it's the same God, right? And in many ways, some of the same purposes. But you can understand why people would think that Jesus must be, maybe he is Elijah come back from the dead, because the only time you've ever seen or heard of such miracles is through the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. But the extent of Jesus' miracles is much bigger. Right. He exceeded Elijah and Elisha. But there was definitely a connection there. And then the remaining history of the southern kingdom until its fall to the Babylonians is in this final section, 18 through 25. And again, um, these are kings like Ahaz, Ahaz was reigning in Judah when the northern kingdom of Israel fell. The Assyrians then tried to take the kingdom of Judah as well, didn't they? But it didn't go so well. You remember the famous story of God destroying the Assyrian camp in the night. And Manasseh, who was notably the most wicked king, and he reigned longer than any other king, over 50 years, followed by perhaps the most righteous king since since David, and then you had a succession of two-bit despots that followed Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, who basically were nothing other than low-level, weak, and corrupt kings. And then they fell to the Babylonians. So that takes us through that sort of the book and gives you an outline of its contents. I want to talk a little bit about one issue is that if you if you were to dive into the, the commentaries, one thing that you would see is, well, let's start with this. Th- throughout the book, you have this repeated pattern, something along the lines of in the year, you know, second or fourth or 22nd year of... A, a king in Judah or Israel, it would say, it would, it would name the king in the opposite kingdom. So, say, in the year, of, in the 22nd year of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and then it would name a king in Israel, began to reign. So, so and so began to reign in Israel. And then it would tell you, he reigned for 
a certain number of years. And then at the end of the story of his life, it would say, and that king slept with his fathers. And then it would tell you, so-and-so, his son, reigned in his place. And then that pattern would repeat. So you have these, these descriptions of, of the reigns of these kings that actually have chronological markers, right? It tells you how long they reigned. It tells you what, reign, what year in this king's reign this king started and when they end. And so there's a lot of chronological markers. And what scholars have discovered is when you go through the chronological markers, there are actually certain problems that you come up with. Certain of the chronological markers within the book appear to contradict each other. Sometimes it would say that a king started his reign in this year, and then in another place it would actually say that it started in a different year, or that it ended in a different year. Some of them, these problems are very difficult to see. You wouldn't see them as you're reading through just in your devotions. But if you started to kind of track everything and map it out, you'd see, oh, wait, okay, so how does that work? So I say apparent problems because uh, what you see is that is that there are certain elements of the text that appear to contradict each other. Also, when you tally up the totals of the reigns, in other words, and you put them, the, reign, the reigns of the various kings back to back, they don't seem to match. In other words, they, they don't seem to fit with the timeline that's laid out. Now, there are solutions to this. And like with many, you know, apparent contradictions, like when you start working through some of the apparent contradictions within the gospel records where, you know, one, one story in one gospel says it happened this way, another story says it happens this way, right? And they, they appear not to fit perfectly. There's similarities, but there's also differences, and you're not sure how the differences could fit together. We would call them apparent problems because it's not to say that there aren't, but we know that that if the scripture is inspired, then obviously these aren't real contradictions. They appear to be contradictions to us, but they're not real. And the same type of thing happens in the books of Kings and Chronicles. Now, that doesn't mean there's not possible solutions, right? If you read through a book that's harmonizing the Gospels, for instance, they're going to lay out ways that these could fit together. The problem is you don't always know which one is right. Sometimes you can say, well, this is the most likely solution, but it could be any of those solutions. Some might be more likely than others. And at the end of the day, there might be a solution that we don't even know about, right? (laughs) So... I think that this is not uncommon. Uh, for instance, you know, Steve, you worked in, uh, was it in, were you in investigations in the CHP? I'm guessing that if you were, were working in investigation and you were taking um, accounts from different people about what happened in a particular event, you might get accounts that appear to contradict until maybe you get more information and you realize, oh, that's why it was that way. And they actually fit together. It's just we didn't have all the information. Well, a similar thing is true with the Gospels and also with these books that have all these chronological markers where at times you're not sure how they fit together. If we had all of the information, we would see. But the scriptures are not always interested in giving us all of the information. So we have possible solutions But we may not always know exactly which one it is. 
But some possible solutions are that we know that there were different methods of counting the first year of a reign. Why would potentially problems arise when you're counting the first year of a king's reign? What decision do you have to make? When you started. Okay, so do they always start on January 1st? Right? <laughs> and that's not even the calendar that they would use. But the point is, they might start the middle of a year. So when do you, what's the first year of the reign? Is it, do you go backwards or do you go forwards, right? Do you see what I'm saying? So there were different methods of counting the first year of a king's reign. Also, there were different calendars. So I already mentioned that he would use different sources. There were different sources that he was using. And it is possible that in different times where he's referencing the beginning or ending of a king's reign, he was using sources that drew upon a different calendar. So in other words, a different a different way of counting time. And then also, there are different ways of counting co-regencies. So do you guys remember the story of Uzziah, where he goes into the temple with a censer? Do you remember what happened to him? Leprosy. He became a leper. My mom's giving all of the answers here. I'll be quiet. No, I'm just joking. It's totally fine. I just, I just finished reading. <laughs> so I'm fresh I'm on my yeah, so he went into the temple... This was toward the end of his reign, and he, it was a brazen act. The king was not a priest, obviously, so he wasn't allowed in. The priests saw that when he went in, he broke out in leprosy, so they ushered him out, and then it said he had to spend the rest of his reign basically hidden away in a house because he was a leper, right? Couldn't be part of the community. So what happened? Well, he's still alive, so he's still king, but his son had to begin ruling while he was still alive. So then you have an overlap of reigns. And how would you count? The, the reigns can't be put just back to back because they actually overlap. So all of these factors mean that when you're going through and you know, potentially you might see discrepancies, apparent discrepancies in the numbers and the, and the, the length of reigns. These are some of the ways in which you could see that if you had all the information, they could be reconciled. So they're not true problems, they're apparent problems, but we don't always know exactly how to figure all that out. It's complicated. So I wanted to put that out there so that you'd be aware of that, because it is something that will arise, especially if you were to dive into any commentaries. Any questions about that? Even Josiah, I mean, he was a little boy when they made him king, but when he actually started reigning, he was quite a bit older. So right. they're, whatever they're talking about, right. when they say the length of his reign... right. Right. When they decided he actually started. Yeah, I mean, essentially the point is is that we just, we don't know exactly what they were thinking when they wrote these things. And so, the parent problems are not true problems, it's just that there's a lot of complications and we don't have all the information about how they were counting and how they were marking these beginning and end times. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk about the purpose of First and Second Kings. In other words, what was the author thinking when he wrote this book? Why was he, why was he writing it? What was he trying to accomplish through it? What was its main point? And first, it was written to Israelites in exile. And so that meant that the author would have been seeking to address those Israelites. And I think you know scholars have pointed out that if you're an Israelite in exile, you probably had certain things that you were thinking about, certain questions that you had that were arising in your mind because, you know, here you are in exile. 
What, what kind of questions might you have had if you were an Israelite in exile? Why God do this Yeah, you might have thought, why, why would God do this to us? Especially if, like if you are, even during the kingdom period, people probably weren't aware, weren't cognizant fully of, I mean, oftentimes the law of God, for instance, was completely lost. You remember how Josiah, the king, actually found it. <laughs> and he had someone read it to him, and he was like, oh, no, we're in trouble, you know. But so they might not have had access to the law of God for periods of time. They might not have understood the sp- true spiritual condition of the, the nation, right? So they could have been asking, why did this happen to us? You know, I thought we were God's people. At least they knew that. Why would he have, have us in exile, right? Kicked out of our land. What other pro- questions might you have? Are we ever going to get back? Right? Or is God done with us, right? Is this, are we just going to sort of fade into oblivion in history? And in some ways, from a human perspective, it's pretty amazing that they didn't, right? <laughs> what can we do to fix it? Right. What should we do? Like, if you are spiritually minded, if you're a believer in exile, you're wanting to know, okay, God has sent us into exile, but what does he, what does he want from us? So you think about so many of the commands in the civil law were fulfillable in the land, right? Laws about worship, laws about the temple, laws about how you would live as a community in the land. But now we're out of the land, and so much of this doesn't apply in the same way. So how do we, what do we do going forward? What does the Lord want us to do? And one other big question I think that they would have had was, almost certainly there would have been a concern about the kings, the Davidic monarchy, because at least some people would have been aware that God had made a promise to David to set one of his sons upon the throne. But that Davidic king had been removed, and now there was no more Davidic kingdom. The kingdom period in Israel was over, and they were under the rule of someone else. And so there may have been questions about, is God, had God gone back on that promise? Was he still going to fulfill his promise to David? So, These are the types of questions that it seems as if the author of Kings is wanting, intending to answer, to address. And I wrote some of these down here. And I think he does provide certain answers to this question. So for one, he helps them to see throughout the book again and again that the reason they had ended in exile was because of a persistent violation of their covenant with God. Now we take that for granted because... We have, we're reading Kings in the context of the whole Bible, but your typical Israelite in exile may not have understood that. The reason you're here is because throughout our history, we had violated our covenant with God over and over again, especially through persistent idolatry. And this would start with the king, that phrase, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right? Or, in some kings, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord but not like David did, or something like that. So there was this emphasis in the book teaching the people that the reason why they'd ended up in Israel was because of their idolatry. In fact, in 2 Kings 17, where it actually describes the fall of the northern kingdom, in verse 7 it says this, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, 
who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh the king and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before the people, etc., etc. So you see, the author is giving an explanation for why this happened. And by the time you get to that point in the book, you know exactly what he's talking about because he's given you example after example after example throughout the reigns of various kings how Israel had done this, right? So they were suffering the covenant curses. And then second we see that the kings of Israel and Judah had been judged. You know, in other words, had God broken his promise to David? Why had he removed the Davidic king? Well, because the Davidic kings had fallen into the same evil that the people had, right? They'd led the people in covenant breaking. They had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. By the time you get to Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, I mean, it's laughable. They're, they're wicked kings, right? And so finally God removes them and lops off the house of David. But I want you to see something. The author also wants to tell you something else. Well, look at how the book ends. So turn to 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30. These are the last lines in the book. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison, and spoke kindly to him, and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. And that's the end of the book. Why do you think it ended that way? What's his point? There was still a Davidic king. There's still a Davidic king. He's actually explicitly called the king of Judah. Now, if if you're Babylon and these kings, this country has been nothing but trouble. These kings are rascals. They rebelled twice against him. They had to come destroy the whole city, remove the king, You'd think they'd just lop off his head and be done with it. But they don't. They treat him as a king. God preserves the lamp, as it were. Keeps the lamp of the house of David burning so that the book kind of ends like this. And you're like, okay. Okay, there's still a king there. God's not done with the Davidic line. Do you see? So the book is giving you a hope. And by the way, who would be the answer to that ultimate question, right? You see that the the fallen booth of David would be restored. The stump of Jesse would have a a shoot that came out. And that would be the Messiah. So there's a sense in which this is anticipating the restoration of the house of David in the future through another Davidic king who would come. And of course, this is who the prophet said would be God's ultimate anointed one. David was God's anointed, but the Messiah would be God's ultimate anointed. Mashiach, Messiah. And then finally, it also indicates to Israel what they should do from here in in exile. How should they handle this? So, for instance, you have a passage like 2 Kings 22, 18 through 20, which I think is very instructive because you have a, a long narrative where this righteous king, Josiah, after... 50 years of the most wicked king in Israel's history, Manasseh, you have Josiah arises, a righteous king, 
You know, the temple has, has long been overrun, forsaken, dilapidated, filled with idols. And so Josiah says, okay, clean out the temple. And while they're cleaning out the temple, they find the book of the law. And he says, what's this? And so he has one of his scribes read it to him. And he realizes, oh, this is what, no wonder. You know, we're in trouble because this is what the requirements are for us as God's covenant people. And we have long forsaken these commands. But do you remember, what does Josiah do? Does he say, throw his hands up and say, well, I guess all hope is lost. No, he's no he decides to repent. And to seek to do, to fulfill what God, the covenant, the requirements of the covenant as best as he can. And in fact, you have in 2 Kings 22, 18 to 20. It says, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, the words he had heard in the book of the law. Because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought word back to the king. So, if you're a reader in exile, how do you interpret that? <laughs> what, what should you do, right? And there's notes like this throughout the book, which indicate, what should you do if you're in exile? Well, you can't undo everything that's happened. God has purposes of judgment He's working out. But as far as you go, if you repent, and you seek to keep God's commands, the best that you can in your circumstances, then God will be merciful to you, right? <laughs> so you see... This is sort of the, the emphasis of the book is in terms of what should we do now that we are in exile. And that you're here because of covenant disobedience. But if you repent and you begin keeping the covenant, God will be merciful to you. doesn't mean he'll bring everyone back out of exile right away, but he'll be merciful to you right where you are. And Manasseh, who was such a wicked king. Right. God forgave him when he repented. <laughs> right. In fact, over and over again, you see that he has mercy upon wicked kings like Ahab, like Manasseh, etc. Okay. We're going to have to move into the book of Chronicles here. <laughs> Cover Chronicles a little bit quicker. Just a few things here by way of introduction. Author, Chronicles, anonymous. Sources, well, he quotes from the books of Samuel and Kings, as well as other extra-biblical sources. Like he mentions, this is just an example, Second Chronicles 9, 29, just listen to this. He says, he says, Now the rest of the acts of Solomon from first to last, are they not written in the history of Nathan the prophet, and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, and the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat? Right? So there are multiple sources that he's aware of, perhaps drawing on. The date, at the very end of the book, he mentions... The chronicler, second, in Second Chronicles 36, 23, he says, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So you have a reference to this edict of Cyrus, given to the, where he... Uh, tells the exilic community now in Persia, because Persia had conquered Babylon at this time and taken over. And he tells them, 
that God had revealed to him that he was to let the people go up and that they were to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Right? And so that means that we're pushing this book out into the, not the exilic period, but now if, if this is recorded in the book, and it must have happened, the book must be written after the return out of exile. So this book seems to have been written to, at least in part, to the post-exilic community, Israelites who had come back out of exile and were now in the land again, but still under Persian rule, because we know that they would never come after Persia. Who took over after Persia? Alexander the Great, and then after that it was the Romans, and so there was a brief period of time where they gained their independence under the Maccabees, but but really they, they lived under the boot of some imperial power for all the years to come. The recipients, or the, the unity of the book, this was originally one book, not two, in the Hebrew text, and again, this is historical narrative. A couple of things about its place in the Old Testament. This is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. So the, the Bible that Jesus and the apostles would have used, that the Jews would have used in that day. You remember I talked about at the beginning the Tanakh, right? The law, the prophets, and the writings, the threefold Hebrew Bible. Well, Chronicles is actually the last book in the Hebrew Bible. It fits in the section called the writings, whereas First and Second Kings would have been in the section called the prophets. And... It covers actually all of human history. If you go to 1 Chronicles 1, what is the first thing you see? Adam. Uh, many have pointed out that aside from Matthew, this is the only book that tells basically, starts with Adam and takes you all the way up to the time of writing. The time of writing, that it was written seemingly in the days after the Edict of Cyrus. So it takes you from Adam all the way to the Edict of Cyrus. So it spans a long uh, period. It focuses on the same events that we see in both Samuel and Kings. But what we see when you read Chronicles is that it tells that same story in a different way, right? So it covers the reign of David and the reign of the Davidic kings all the way until the exile. But it tells that same story as we're told in Samuel and Kings in a different way. Why? Because it's emphasizing different things for a different audience. So for instance... When you read Chronicles, it's a very positive portrayal of David and Solomon. No mention of David's sin with Bathsheba in Chronicles. No mention of Solomon's idolatry, and on and on. All right? it's, it's very much more of a positive portrayal of the Davidic kings. There is an emphasis in Chronicles upon David and Solomon's involvement with the building of the temple. So it spends much more time talking about the Levites and the building of the temple and all of these things. So there's an emphasis upon the spiritual aspect and the, and the worship of God in the temple in the book of Chronicles. Also, it emphasizes individuals and generations of Israelites having a choice whether to obey or not. If they obeyed, God would bless them. If they didn't, God would curse them. And so there's a real emphasis upon that theme, the theme which we've already talked about in 1 Kings. And we'll get to this more. In terms of an outline, we're just going to move through this quickly because we're almost out of time. You have in 1 Chronicles 1-9 through 9, an emphasis, or uh, the genealogies of the tribes of Israel. And there's an emphasis in the genealogies upon Judah and Levi. Why? So this is the central focus of the book, is the, the worship of God at the temple and the Davidic kingdom. 
in First Chronicles 10 through Second Chronicles 9, you have history of the United Kingdom under David and Solomon. But it begins with the death of Saul and the start of David's reign. So Saul, all the stuff about Saul is left out of the history, focuses entirely upon David, and focuses primarily upon David and Solomon's reign. So almost as much time is spent talking about those two kings' reign as the rest of the kings, right? The last part of the book, 10 through 36, is a history of the southern kingdom of Judah after Solomon through exile. Notice I said the southern kingdom because the northern kingdom is sort of left out of the picture at this point. Emphasizes Judah and the Davidic kingdom. And the story is told in such a way that if you have eyes to see it, you'll notice that there's a real emphasis upon the centrality on the issue of worship. Idolatry versus worship is a big theme. Just like you see in the genealogies, right? It focuses on the Levites, the tabern, the temple, etc. Um, and then finally, there's an emphasis upon retribution from God upon wicked kings and blessing upon kings who obeyed the Lord. So that leads us to the purpose. What is the purpose of First and Second Chronicles? We talked about the per- why First or First and Second Kings was written. What about Chronicles? Well, it's written to Israelites who are now back in the land but under Persian rule still, right? And you can imagine that would come again with a certain set of questions, things that they are wondering about. And the book seems to have been written to address some of those questions. What's going to happen? Are, are we still God's people? He brought us out of exile, but we're still under the boot of the Persians. Is he still with us? You remember they built the temple, but one thing was, they rebuilt the temple, but one thing was strikingly missing from the temple. Can you even think what it would be? The ark. Okay, the ark and God's presence. The presence of God, right? So those who had seen the first temple, remember, wept when they saw the second because they knew. Ugh. So you can imagine there's like, well, this is good, but it's not the same. Has God abandoned us? Have we gone so far that he's done with us, right? And what about the Davidic promise? Yes, we're out of exile and back in the land, but we're still under the rule of another power. Will the kingdom ever be restored? Is there hope for us? What should we do going forward, right? And the book provides certain answers to these questions. The author uses, for instance, genealogies to establish for the readers their connection in with the nation of Israel and the Davidic kingdom. And in fact, as we saw, even the author connects them into the line of, of believers going all the way back to Adam. It doesn't trace through the line of Seth or Esau or Ishmael. It traces through that other line. The line of believers going through Abraham and Noah all the way back to and through Seth and then Adam. So using genealogies, the author is emphasizing that they are connected still. They're rooted into the line of of the promise. It indicates that God hasn't abandoned them. He's not done with them. And then it also traces the descendants of David all the way down to their day. Do you guys remember the the descendant of David that sort of takes a prime place in this post-exilic period in books like Ezra and Nehemiah? And his name started with a Z. You remember? Zerubbabel. You guys remember that? So when you look at the the genealogy of David, it traces the line all the way to Zerubbabel and beyond. Now, what would be the point of that? Well, he's emphasizing that 
the, the lamp of, his, of David's house has not gone out, right? God has preserved descendants of David all the way down to, to, to today, right? And he, it would have taken you up to the time when you could say, there's David's heir. And the implication would be that, no, God isn't done with the Davidic promise. The, the house of David is like a stump, but, but it's still there. No one is on the throne, but the house of David has been preserved, the line of David. And so that would have been an encouragement to them. And of course, it would have anticipated the coming king, right? The one whom David saw and said, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You're waiting, waiting for, for that king. And the author's emphasizing that, that the line was still there. It had been preserved through all of this craziness. And then he retells the history of Israel's kingdom period in such a way to emphasize to his readers what to do going forward. And I think the classic text is the one I quoted here, right? Solomon dedicating the temple. In the dedication, he mentions the people being taken away into exile and suffering God's covenant curses because of their own sin. And at one point he says, the Lord speaks, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Even if they were in a distant land, even if the temple was no more, God would hear them from heaven if they would repent. So you see, that's a, actually a theme that echoes throughout the book and it gives instruction to this post-exilic community. What do you do? Humble yourselves. Pray. Seek the face of God. Turn from your wicked ways and He will hear you. And He will forgive your sin. And one day He will hear your, heal your land. So do you see, this is really captures an, a clear emphasis in the book because throughout the book you see this play out in various ways in the examples of different kings. Then finally, what about Chronicles and Kings with respect to the New Testament? Well, I want to say a few things here, and we'll go through these quickly. Kings and Chronicles both tell the story of the unfolding of the Davidic promise. The Davidic promise is really right at the heart of Kings and Chronicles. The Davidic covenant isn't named in the books of Kings, but it shapes the entire book, right? It's all about the unfolding of the Davidic promise. The Davidic promise is named in the book of Chronicles that both books, Kings and Chronicles, show the immediate fulfillment of the Davidic promise. God did raise up a son out of David's body, did set him on the throne, and he did build a house for the Lord. So there's an immediate fulfillment, but the whole trajectory of the book, as you move on from Solomon, beginning with Solomon himself and his unfaithfulness, his idolatry, followed by the immediate division of the kingdom and then the decline of the kingdom and the fall of Israel and then the fall of, Jer- of Jerusalem and the cutting off of the Davidic dynasty. See, the books lead you to that point where you're asking, what about the Davidic promise? God had said that he would set a son on David's throne and that he would reign forever. So how is it going to be fulfilled? And both books then, by showing the decline and fall of the Davidic kingdom, with the background of the Davidic promise in mind, they both serve to anticipate the need for a restoration of the Davidic dynasty, 
you remember the, the passage in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council where James actually quotes from an Old Testament prophecy which spoke of the fallen booth of David being put back up again, right? <laughs> and you can look at other prophecies like the stump of Jesse having a, a shoot coming out, right? Well, that's what these books really anticipate. On the other side of the exile, they are, by, by telling you about, yeah, we had a lot of king, Davidic kings, but none of them were it. None of them were, we, we need a better Davidic king. We need the fallen booth of David to be restored. And so in that sense... They're really pointing you toward the Messiah. And during the, these, these history books, you had prophets who were speaking of him, right? Speaking of him. Beginning with David himself. And so the prophets foretold that this need of a greater king, a righteous king, an eternal king, who would raise up the fallen booth of David and restore the Davidic kingdom would be answered in the Messiah. The New Testament then, when you come to the New Testament, what does the New Testament have to do with First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles? Well, it answers the great dilemma that these books present of the decline and fall of the Davidic house uh, and the need for a greater king who would rule in righteousness and rule forever so that this would never happen again. And they announce, you remember the announcement of the angel. In fact, let's end on this. The announcement of the angel to the Virgin Mary in Luke 1. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be the son of the Most High God. Remember the Davidic promise? I will be a father to him. He shall be my son. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's all against the background of that Davidic promise. And so the New Testament, again, I always say this, it's like trumpet blast. He's here, right? Yes, the, the, the great answer to the tragedy of Kings and Chronicles has come now in Jesus Christ. We're looking at this text today where Andrew goes to his brother Peter and says, we have found the Messiah. (laughs) Imagine that, the significance of that. And so this is uh, how 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, how how they anticipate and move in terms of the canon of Scripture to the New Testament and how they find their great answer in the New Testament. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. If you have questions, you can always come and ask me after class. Sorry, again, um, didn't leave much time for questions. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Kings and Chronicles and our time spent looking at these books and how they fit into the Bible, how they find their fulfillment, their answer in Jesus, how they teach us fundamental principles of the need to repent of sin, the need to turn from our wicked ways, the need to humble ourselves and seek your face and, and how you are merciful and good and gracious to us and how you have provided the king that we all need in the Lord Jesus who will rule finally in righteousness. We think of that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that the righteous rule of Jesus is our only hope of perfect peace in this world. And we we long for him, the Prince of Peace, to return in glory, to make all things new and right. And we 
We praise you that you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son and that we now call ourselves citizens of that heavenly kingdom. And we do long for our king to return. But until then, Lord, we know you've called us to go forth as his emissaries and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom that many other souls would be ransomed from sin and death and hear the Lord Jesus say on the last day, enter into my kingdom. And we pray that you would give us a passion to share the good, that good news of hope to those who are unbelievers in our life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.